Welcome to episode 32, big episode 32. Say of, that every time. <laughs> it's always a big episode here at UConn 360, which is the only podcast that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. We're coming to you in the last week of classes, so there's still time to save your grade by asking for extra credit. Joining me, as always, Julie Bartuka. Hi. Ken Best. Do I get extra credit for being here? You absolutely do. Uh, my name is uh, Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts, and uh, we have uh, a big episode for you. It's a wonderful show, lots of stuff going on, and we're going to start the way we always start, or usually start, with some Husky headlines. Ken, what is new in the world of UConn? Well, we have new performances and exhibitions that we think are very interesting. This week, the It's Always Pandemonium exhibit opens at the Ballard Museum and Institute of Puppetry. It's a career retrospective for Bart P. Rockleburton Jr., the director of the worldwide famous puppetry program here at UConn. Bart's been uh, doing this for a long time, and as he says, he uh, doesn't build puppets anymore. He builds puppeteers. Mm. And so this goes actually from his MFA days when he was a student here after he arrived in Connecticut studying under Frank Ballard, for whom the museum is named, and his time here as a student and then his own company, Pandemonium Puppets, which is why the title is the way that it is, and the work of his students over the last 25 or 30 years. And the exhibit is going to go through September, so there's plenty of time to come up, see the exhibit, the puppets, and catch a puppet show. Sounds like a good summer activity. And also uh, this week, we will wind down with the uh, final performances of Henry the Fourth at the Connecticut Repertory Theater at the Harriet S. Jorgensen Theater. It's an adaptation. There are two parts to the Henry IV Shakespeare plays. They are combined, directed by one of the country's rising young directors, Madeline Sayet, and she's got a great cast. The leads are Ayala Habib and Michelle Tauber. Ayala plays King Henry, and Michelle plays Falstaff, which is not so unusual for women in leads since uh, Glenda Jackson's on Broadway as King Lear right now. Mm. But it's a very interesting approach. Cool. Nice. Julie? I've got some cool research items. We know that UConn is a top public research university, and we have more proof now. According to CSR Rankings, an organization which compiles a metrics-based rankings of the top computer science programs in the world, UConn is tied for ninth place with Princeton University for research output in bioinformatics and computational biology. The top 10 included other powerhouse research institutions, such as Carnegie Mellon and MIT. These rankings calculate the total amount of publications submitted and presented at top bioinformatics and computational biology conferences conferences around the U.S. and beyond in the past decade. And UConn Engineering is not just making impact globally, but we're also getting into deep space. A team of researchers is working on a NASA-funded project that's aimed at advancing the design of resilient deep space habitats that will help NASA with its goal of returning and staying on the moon by 2024. So that's pretty far out. That is. Anything involving moon research is pretty great. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. Speaking of uh, interesting research and prestige. Two UConn professors have been named to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is sort of like the Hall of Fame for smart people. It's a big deal. (laughs) It was founded in 1780 by that famous vaudeville duo, John Adams and James Bowden. Um, The professors who are so honored are uh, Dr. Cato Lorenzen, who is the very first UConn health faculty member to be elected to the academy. He is a prolific, prolific researcher. And uh, physics professor Nora Berra, who was actually department head from 2014 to 2018. Cato Lorenzen, of course, is a pioneer in orthopedic surgery and materials science, regenerative surgery, easy for me to say. 
And Professor Barra is an expert in the field of molecular dynamics, particularly for her pioneering work in nonlinear science using X-ray lasers. Cool. I believe Michelle Obama was also inducted in this class. It's yeah, Wow. So it's yeah, a prestigious so group of people. It is, it is really a big deal. It's important. not like one of those things that happens to university faculty members all the time. Right. And I, I just as a small note, friend of the podcast, Mike Stanton, who we talked to uh, a few episodes ago, was granted tenure by the Board of Trustees. Oh, cool. Congrats. Last week, as you're hearing this. He's a great guy. He is a great guy. Yeah, so exciting news and exciting stories, too. Ken, what do you have for us this week? Last time we were on, I mentioned the exhibit on housing in Hartford, from civil rights to human rights, African-American, Puerto Rican, and West Indian housing struggles in Hartford County, 1940 to 2019, which was prepared by Professor Fiona Vernal and a group of her students. That exhibit at the Dodd Center has closed, but there are plans to have it in Hartford at some point in the very near future. And that exhibit details a 70-year history of housing struggles by those who migrated to the Hartford region, covering intertwined housing issues, including poverty, racial discrimination, residential segregation, and public housing. I spoke with Professor Vernell about her research for the exhibit, and she began by talking about housing as a commonality for all people because we all have housing. We all have different kinds of experiences where we can connect, whether it's we rent, we purchase homes, we know people whose homes have been foreclosed on. We hear about the homeless crisis all of the time. So no matter what your point of entry is um, into the exhibition, I think it's very easy for people to step back and say, oh, this story connects to me, right? We all have a housing story. One of the things that is important in the organization of these exhibit are the images that you find. Uh, in, in, in the one that we discussed last fall on West Indian immigrants to the Hartford area, you were able to find very vivid images from the time when people first started coming to Hartford to work as immigrants and then those who stayed forming communities and establishing uh, churches and, and, and a whole social structure. The same thing is true in this exhibit. It's also striking that you're using a visualization and combining archival research, uh, exhibition development, and public history all in one, which seems to be today a very good way to explain history. I think it's an excellent way to explain history, especially as we're asking questions about the relevance and the purpose and the value of history. In designing all of these exhibits, we actually start with the images. As we're having conversations about the relevance and the value and the purpose of history, this has been one of the primary ways that I've been able to engage my students. I have no problems attracting students to work on this kind of project because they're very much interested in storytelling, in narrative. How can you connect? And it, it legitimizes the way that they want that emotional content in the story, but the images really speak for themselves. So as we start off with the design of the exhibition, the first instruction is if no one reads any of the texts for this exhibition, they need to be able to walk away with the story based on the images that accompany the text. And I think that is what is so powerful about public history and about exhibitions as a space where we can tell different kinds of stories is that it, it gives you an opportunity to get people 
uh, students, the public, to connect with a particular takeaway from one image, whether it's of a mother and her son standing in front of a building that has been condemned, or some of the early images um, in the first panels of the exhibit where you see African-American men and African-American women standing outside of their homes, and you can look at the living conditions without having any of the captions there. You see how run down the buildings are. You see the clothing hanging outside, and you see how dilapidated the buildings are. And whether you read the caption or not, one of the first questions that comes to mind is, why are the living conditions of these particular people allowed to be this way? You start with the first half of the 20th century history, where there are overcrowded neighborhoods, high rents, dilapidated housing, absentee landlord. These issues really have never gone away. One of the amazing things that we have is the archive of the Hartford Times, and they took the time to document how Hartford was changing. If you read some of the headlines from the 1930s, the 1940s, 2010, or just a few weeks ago, it's timeless. It's as if they're the very same conditions, and that is what is unfortunate about Hartford today is that it has been one of the most residentially segregated places, cities in America. It was that way in the 1930s. It was that way in the 1940s. And despite all of the problems and all of the promises of urban renewal um, and gentrification, Hartford remains one of the most highly segregated spaces. And that is why the housing problem um, is so pervasive and seems so timeless. The issues people were dealing with in the 1930s don't look that substantially different from the issues they were de- they're dealing with now. And this connection between those two facts and this timelessness is race and ethnicity and class. There was a report uh, that I saw from last year which indicated that Connecticut is one of the toughest housing markets in the country, uh, that uh, you would need almost $1,300 a month for a two-bedroom apartment. And you need to make almost $25 an hour, and the minimum wage is not quite there yet for that. With this kind of information, current and the history that's that's in your exhibit, what do you want people's takeaway to be on this? While I don't advocate everyone running away to the suburbs um, as a solution, we have to understand that housing is very expensive. And people are paying 30, 35% of their income on housing, which leaves very little for other needs. The other takeaway is that there needs to be a different discussion around the meaning of affordable housing and where affordable housing is located. There are many folks who will gladly champion the idea of affordable housing, but then when you want to bring affordable housing to West Hartford or Canton or Avon, they actually find ways to pressure the developers to restrict their ability to actually include affordable units. The way in which we talk about poverty also needs to change. James Baldwin has you know, has a quote that I use in the exhibit about how expensive it is 
to be poor. And to that, I would add how exhausting it is to be poor. You know, so sometimes when we're talking about welfare recipients or other people who may receive um, government benefits, the kind of humiliation that folks have to go through to access services that they're entitled to, the amount of time <laughs> it takes for them to engage with the social workers and the other sort of gatekeepers who are handling access to services. All of these can be exhausting and humiliating encounters, and people are not just sitting around wanting to be on government services and doing nothing. But if you need to make $25 an hour <laughs> in order to function in Connecticut and have a decent house, and your jobs are offering you seven, eight, nine, ten, can we dream about $15 an hour as a minimum wage? We have to understand the really difficult position that the housing market forces people into. So an, an issue that has been with us and continues to be with us, and Professor Vernell is going to follow this all the way. I love seeing that we make impact on everything from our researchers, I should say. I'm not here making impact on these issues, but everything from something as you know important and vital as housing to out in outer space. That's pretty I think exciting. you could say we. I think, you know. We're making a huge impact on the world. Because we are Connecticut's university. All the people of Connecticut participate. One UConn. One UConn. Yeah, that's true. So uh, on that uh, happy, unifying note, Julie, <laughs> what, what do you have for us? I got a little bit meta this week. Uh, I talked to a professor not about his academic research, but about his research and work related to academics. John Redden is an assistant professor in residence in physiology and neurobiology, and he's also the assistant director of faculty development programs in the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. I met Redden at the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences book celebration in February because he recently authored an anatomy and physiology textbook that's available on an interactive digital platform called Top Hat, which seems to me kind of like the wave of the future of textbooks. It's a customizable book. The professors who use it can edit it. They can put new research in when it's updated so it's not immediately obsolete. They can take out sections they may not be teaching, and it also costs less than $100. We spoke about why it's important to teach science communication to pre-med students, for professors to try new things to engage their classes, and for students to see that professors are humans too. Stay with me. I have kind of a long preamble to my first question. So a few weeks ago, I was in the waiting room at the doctor, and there was an older person, older man next to me with his daughter, and he was talking about all the forms he has to fill out about family history, and he didn't understand why they needed this information. He also told her he was on medicine for prediabetes and said something like, you know, oh, as soon as you're overweight, they tell you you have prediabetes. And she kind of tried to explain to him what that really means. And it was just really interesting to me as somebody who edits a health research magazine, and I read a lot about the research that goes on here at UConn, that people don't really understand things about their health, the general public. And that's a long-winded way of saying that I agree with you and the fact that science literacy, and by extension, health literacy, should really be improved. So just wanted to know a little bit about your thoughts on that and what types of things you're doing in that area to help. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think anybody really has to go too far to identify someone that we know that's been that person in the waiting room. I think there's a lot of factors. There's a lazy explanation that we could give that I think in certain circles people latch onto, which is this is the age of information, right? It's out there. Most people have access to the internet, to Google. We should be doing a better job of educating ourselves. But this is the age of Google. Information is everywhere. And as we know, a lot of the good information is buried uh, on page two and three and four of Google search. I think the other piece of it is that there hasn't really been a strong push to train scientists and train uh, medical providers to communicate to a public audience. I think scientists and medical providers tend to incorporate a lot of jargon and that's reflective of their really, really specialized knowledge that they have, that they've earned and, and put a lot of effort into learning. But ultimately, when you're communicating with your patient in the doctor's office or when we as faculty are trying to encourage students and engage them in science, especially early on, that language doesn't resonate with them. One of the courses that I teach in the physiology department, uh, most of our majors are, are pre-med, pre-health, and a few are planning on going into research. The course is a science communication course, but it specifically focuses on the public communication of science. It's quite different than a lot of our other courses. Historically, like most science departments, we've always focused on that technical style of communication. We train our students to write journal articles. We train them to give research presentations. But we don't really talk to them about how to have those casual conversations in the elevator or you know, even how to talk to friends and, and relatives about some of the really important stuff that they're doing. You told a very moving story at the Story Collider live event, which is a science story podcast, which is also available as a podcast at storycollider.org, about the personal side of teaching and the impact you've found that you have on students. What is kind of your teaching philosophy? How do you approach teaching undergraduates? So one of the things I talked about in my story is that I came from a very large school, uh, University of Buffalo, about the same size as UConn. And I think that especially if you're a first-generation student or a student who maybe hasn't had an experience in such a big setting, it's difficult for students to find support networks. For me, one of the things I'm always trying to focus on is that personal connection with students. You know, a lot of students expect that when they come into my office to talk to me, we have to talk about physiology. But in fact, you know, sometimes I'm okay to just talk about TV shows or, or their pets or something else that's going on, because from that, it does a couple of things. Um, first and foremost, it, it shows to the students that actually the faculty are human too. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's not always something that, that comes across the first couple of times. But the second thing it does, it really establishes trust. You know, once, once we get into that mode where it, it's just a little bit more casual, Maybe they're more likely to open up about things that they're confused about, things they're not understanding. They're more likely to accept advice about their career trajectory or all sorts of things. And related to that, too, is you're very involved and interested in the pedagogy of active learning and engaging those students in the classroom. So how can teachers and professors really engage their students and not just kind of lecture to a giant room? I think you have to try. I mean, I, I really, I think that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the critical first step is that you you have to recognize that potentially there's a problem 
I always find it helpful to engage students in the process, you know, tell them, listen, this class might run a little bit different than some of the other classes that you've taken. This is an experiment. This is something that we're trying. Give me feedback as we go. But I think a lot of it just, again, boils down to that relationship that you have with the students in the classroom environment that you have. It makes them more willing to answer questions and put themselves out there to be vulnerable. By doing that, it also gives them an opportunity to see the limits of my knowledge. <laughs> so especially in science, or maybe not, but, but from my perspective as a scientist, professor. Like one of the things that, that students will occasionally mention is, well, I can't be like you, like you're so smart. And I like to tell them, you know, I'm actually not that smart. I have done my time uh, in higher ed, but really it's just about appreciating learning and kind of appreciating the process. So by doing those types of activities, you can really promote a nice growth mindset. So maybe I should have asked this first, but um, <laughs> all of this kind of comes together in your background. So you're a first-generation college student, I am. right? So did that lead to any kind of uh, unique challenges along the way to getting your PhD and becoming a professor that colored what you're interested in now and what you're active in now? It definitely did. I mean, I, I should say um, I am a first-generation student, but I also was lucky to come from a very supportive family. You know, my, my parents were always incredibly supportive of me academically and, and encouraged me to do things. Getting back to what we were talking about before, I think it's really the the human aspect that matters. You know, there's so much that we take for granted here as faculty that we don't really appreciate what our students are going through. I mean, in my big class, I, I have students that are working full-time at a job. Some are working two jobs. You know, some of them can't come to class on a regular basis because they have to get their little siblings on the bus or, or their own children on, on the school bus. For that reason, there's been a lot of barriers to access that you don't necessarily see unless you're the person going through that. So one of the things I take from my own experience is always to try to give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, a whole hidden side to college. People assume that the hard part about college is going to be just coming and learning the information in your classes, right? But there's also this huge adjustment that comes from being in a new place, from having to live on your own, from having to interact with all these people. Certain things, like a student a few semesters ago, I always tell people to come to office hours, right? It's our chance to interact on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But, you know, I had a student a few semesters ago that thought that office hours was like my private time in my office where they, where they couldn't come. And it was really eye-opening to see how something that's like such a basic component of the college experience could really be completely missed by somebody who didn't really have friends or family mm -hmm. that could tell them what office hours were. You know, we just kind of take for granted that it's a thing. Well, thank you so much. This has been a very interesting Oh, my pleasure. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. That's very interesting. It takes me back to my, my days uh, buying textbooks. <laughs> yes, textbooks. It, it would be great if we could get some less expensive textbooks going on. Well, the, the configuration of the bookstore now is completely different than it was many years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, there are uh, textbooks, but there's also different ways of obtaining the books. You can rent the books online. I do that you a lot. You can uh, rent them physically and return them, and it's, it's all different. Changing. None of this was available when I was a student. We just got a McGuffey's Reader, and we liked it. <laughs> um, you know, speaking of when I was a student, we're talking about uh, the distant past, and so what better way to segue into Tom's History Corner? And this week, I want to talk about the early days of women at UConn. Oh, fun so, topic. 
a uh, this was uh, prompted by a student who approached me to. Uh, there's a journalism class doing a project where they're doing like obituaries on lesser known Yukon figures. Oh yeah, I heard about Times. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she wanted uh, to talk about Mildred French, who was the dean of women here in the from the 20s to the yes. 50s. And uh, so I was like, okay. But then I started reading about the history of women even before Mildred French, and I got very interested. So I'm going to present my findings. <laughs> Yay! I, I, I do know it goes back to the very early days of yeah. the it does. Uh, so university. The institution was founded in 1881, and there were no women uh, in that first decade. Wow. It, it was legally a male-only institution okay. uh, until 1893 when the state legislature passed a law allowing women. However... Women had been attending for two years prior to that mm. because President Benjamin Coons was a product of a then pioneering co-educational program at Oberlin. And he's like, well, there's no reason that men and women shouldn't go to college together. Good for Coons. So the first two women to attend class at what would become UConn were Nellie Wilson and Louise Rosebrooks. Oh, those are, um, I lived in Wilson Hall, I believe, in South. And they... Uh, they were also the first commuter students because there was no <laughs> facilities on campus for them. So they just walked from Mansfield where they lived. Okay. But once the legislature said, okay, women can attend what was then called Storrs Agricultural College, they built a dorm for women called Grove Cottage in 1896, and it, it burned down in 1919. Ugh. That's kind of the history of uh, wood buildings uh, in New England generally. <laughs> right. They all burned down sooner or later. But now, so in the, in the early years at Grove Cottage, the women students lived there with not a faculty member, like I guess. A house mother her, her title was lady principal oh my goodness okay <laughs> and uh remember and the, the times remember the times yes yes very the re- different the regimen was strict they had a 6 p.m curfew ouch did they have to eat dinner together and stuff they did have to eat dinner together okay. I, I think that i mean not like in modern times but if i lived back then it would be kind of cool to yeah to live in a place like that especially yeah. called grove cottage grove cottage pretty they were also forbidden by this the first lady principal to attend dances. Aww. So dances were held at the Congregational Church, and uh, it would be uh, male students from UConn and then local women, but the women at Grove Cottage could not attend, and they were apparently very unhappy That's about really this. That's really sad. And the, Their main strange. form of, of social life was a once-a-month <laughs> reception at Grove Cottage uh-huh. where they would invite male students. So they could invite the males into their home, but they yes. couldn't go Well, because under the watchful eye of the lady principal. Why didn't the lady principal just chaperone the dance good, uh, she probably thought music was satanic or something I'm i mean sure this was she did. 1890 oh, uh, in an 1899 essay written by a female student the essay was called for what does stores fit the young lady she opined that even though women earned the same bachelor's degrees as men quote i do not think we are fitted to be agriculturists sac fits the boys for farmers and the girls for farmers wives however that was not the opinion of everyone. And a year after that, in 1900, the first woman student body president was elected. So was she saying that they were only preparing them to be farmers' wives or? No, she was saying that that's what the, even she was saying that it was sort of like pointless to go through all the rigmarole of getting a bachelor's. she couldn't do anything. Yeah. It's like the old. It. Yeah. Like the. I guess these folks didn't go past the Mississippi River yeah. to the West with the Conestoga wagons and read their history books. They did not. So things were changing by 1900 when the first woman was elected student body president. And Progressive. I found an essay by, I think it was the first student body president. The Lookout newspaper, which is the predecessor of the Daily Campus, was it's not what we'd consider sort of newspaper format by the 1890s. <laughs> it's kind of a, like a weird collection of rambling. But there's an essay by a student named Lena Eliza Latimer, class of 1900. And she wrote a, a little essay about what it was like to be a female student at UConn. I won't read the whole thing, but it's very interesting. Uh, and so she talked about the schedule, the class schedule, and how at the end of the day they ate 
together, and then uh, it was mostly work. But she wrote, but soon we find that our life here is a happy one. Do not for one moment think we have no fun. (laughs) We have a gymnasium, and our physical culture is not a trial but a pleasure to us. Then what else need we do from 4 o'clock until supper time but go for a walk, take a book from the library and read, have a song, or go into one of the other girls' rooms and have a good chat? That sounds positively lovely. One cannot find her work dreary and her life altogether unhappy with all these pleasures to brighten it up. See, Yukon's always been fun. I had something to say about... Oh, Mildred P. French. So I interviewed this awesome guy who lives in West Hartford, Bernie Matlaw, who attended Yukon in the 40s. And he told me about, which I need to go see if I can find at the archives, um, the handbook for women that Mildred P. French would hand out every year. And she had such great advice to female students as... Not wearing patent leather shoes because they reflect. <laughs> and when the women uh, would take cabs with their male friends down to Willimantic for fun, they had to put a newspaper down before they would sit on the man's lap. <laughs> <laughs> this is anecdotal. I haven't seen it, but that's what my friend Bernie told me. I do. I need to find the book. She did She did pass a, a rule um, prohibiting women students from hitchhiking in 1944. And, well, it's and probably for the best. Probably for the best. <laughs> and in 1953, which is the year she retired, she was still coming up with the rules. She created a sunbathing area for women students on campus oh. behind Sprague Hall. Okay. And men were banned. And there were only certain times of day that women could go, and they had to wear full-length coats when walking to the sunbathing area. I kind of like that. I don't want idea. men leering at me. Let's, let's have a hidden area. Uh-huh. If you enjoy this, and, and <laughs> how, could Who you, wouldn't? how could you not, frankly? Um <laughs> You can follow us on Twitter at Yukon Podcasts. Um, all of our archives are available on our site. And, um, you know, just uh, let us know what you think. Julie, is there anything else you want the good people of listener land to know? Yes. If you're into health news and research news, the spring 2019 Yukon Health Journal is available now at healthjournal.yukon.edu. We have feature stories about a revolutionary technology that's enabling Yukon Health to diagnose lung cancer earlier, which can save many, many lives, and a team effort to increase awareness of a rare disease that presents as a variety of symptoms and stumps doctors. So there's some new treatments for that. Um, lots of other health news there. And you can follow me at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. Ken, what about you? Well, you can find all these stories that I mentioned, Professor Vernal and the new It's Pandemonium exhibit at uh, today.yukon.edu. All right. So the next time you hear us, it'll be post-commencement. So uh, let's, uh, let's let our hair down and enjoy ourselves, everybody. Take care. Take care.